Welcome to Brain in a Vet. My name is Jimmy Mullen and I'm the producer for this show. I usually work behind the scenes. So I've been producing this podcast for about a year now. And we figured it'd be a good thing to close the year with us three in a conversation talking about all of our favorite topics. So without further ado, Mark, would you like to start with the thought experiment? Imagine two guys that live on the southern tip of Africa with only two laptops and two microphones decided to start the greatest philosophy show of all time and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. And that's how our brain in the vat got started. And we decided to start with this format, which is to have every guest have a thought experiment. I think it's made us quite unique. It's meant to capitalize people's imagination. And we really just have had the most mind-altering conversations with some of not just the smartest people in the world, but some of the loveliest people in the world. We've had, I'd say, about 150 episodes, built up some incredible friendships with our guests. And Jason and I also produced a series of books based on some of those conversations. We've had a couple of book launches. You'll see that in the description of every episode, you can go and have a look at those books. We talk about the meaning of life, the existence of God, the nature of love. Yeah, it's just been an absolutely fascinating journey. And I will say that we would not be able to do it without your help, Jimmy. Jimmy works tirelessly to ensure that you know, our episodes are beautifully edited, to make us look like we know what we're talking about, to take our most long-winded guests and make them seem very precise and concise. We always get feedback from our guests saying, geez, I look so fantastic. Thank you much. We really appreciate it, you know. Mark, I think I'm going to edit everything out except that last part. So I'm just letting you know now. <laughs> Jason, go ahead and hop in. Yeah, I was just going to say thank you, Jimmy. You've done a fantastic job. And thank you to all our guests. It sounds like we're doing a goodbye episode, but it's not. This is just a wrap up for the year. We've got plenty more planned for next year, including a first episode with Stephen Kirshner, who was one of the more interesting guests this year. We had him on multiple times, but one of his appearances in particular caused an enormous stir. I'm sure Mark wants to say more about it. Yes. So the Kirshner controversy is one of the things that was very difficult for us to deal with. I happened to, in my ordinary life, work as a lawyer, and I was involved in probably the biggest trial of my career, a nine-day hate speech trial against the third biggest party in South Africa. And we have been very dogged about ensuring that the show releases once a week. And of course, this was the perfect time to have this controversy absolutely explode. So it's the only episode to have ever been banned by YouTube. It was initially banned, then reinstated after we wrote to them. It's remained up on Spotify, but caused a huge fuss in the philosophy community and was very well received by philosophers, I have to say. Philosophers are good at saying, I disagree with you, but I will fight to the death for your right to disagree with me. Steve's episode was on sexual taboos, and it probably would be our most viewed episode were it not taken down. I think it had hit about 12,000 views within about a day. The opening thought experiment had been picked up by an account called Libs of TikTok, which got about a million views in a weekend, and was then picked up by Fox News. Reporters went to Steve's university, interviewed students. Steve, by the way, has been instructed not to go back to campus to this day. He is tenured, so he cannot be fired for expressing his views, but I think has felt an enormous amount of pressure. The official reason for keeping away from campus is that it's for his own protection. Steve has made a career, I think, of expressing views that are highly controversial. Whichever view you can think of, he has the opposite view on it. And I think maybe it's unfair to say it's his view. I think he's very good at exploring the views. You know, the episode that we're going to be talking about next year in some ways is even more controversial. It's on moral responsibility. He thinks that there isn't any, that no one can be blamed for their actions. It's an even more radical view than some of the sexual taboos, but only in an abstract sense. It's not the kind of thing that's going to ruffle people's feathers on Fox News. But I will say that one of the things that was very buoying about the whole experience was seeing philosophers like Peter Singer rally around, write an open letter. Some of the greatest philosophers in the world supported the idea that Steve should be allowed to speak. 
The Academic Freedom Alliance are very good on this front. Our show is mainly viewed in America. And I imagine if you're watching the show right now, you live in America. And so if anyone in South Africa ever comes up to me, I expect them to know me from the work that I do in court. And I was doing a TV interview on a piece of political legislation. And the interview before we started said, I'm a big fan of your work. And I said, oh, great. Thank you very much. And she said, yeah, Brandon, that's fantastic. And I really enjoyed your episode of Steve Kirchner. So that felt like a big deal for me. And yeah, I've taken the view that I don't mind covering controversial topics. I don't think we necessarily caught it. We take the view that we should try and explore all ideas. Whoever the person is that comes in, we are very polite. We ask very hard questions. And most of our guests have a fantastic time. And they've said to us that it's a safe space for their ideas that they might not be able to indulge in on their own campuses. Yeah, something that we really like to do is to provide a space for guests to explore whatever issue it is that they want to discuss. So before every show, we ask them to talk broadly about a specific topic, and then we ask them to choose the thought experiment that they want to talk about and to explore whatever ideas they want to explore. It's very rare that we actually agree with a guest personally, but as a rule, we always disagree with a guest on the show to probe their views. And this is one of the virtues of philosophy and philosophers is that we find that philosophers really love disagreement. And if you think about any field outside of philosophy, that's not the case. So in politics, disagreement is rife, but it's vicious. It always involves attacking your opponent. And in other academic fields as well, it may not be vicious, but there are schools of thought. And if you don't belong to a certain school of thought, you're antagonistic with another school of thought. So philosophers, you know, the way that we feel connected to other philosophers and the way that we feel respected is when those other philosophers take the time to object to our views. So we really do like disagreement. And it's something that's just so much fun with our guests is that every time we offer them an objection, the better the objection, the bigger the smile on their face, because they feel like, oh, really getting to the nitty gritty here. I can really explain my view. I can explore it and maybe shift my position. And we've had people come on the show before big discussions, before big talks where they have to present on a topic and they say to us, can we please do the show before my big discussion so that I'll know all the possible objections to my view or the big ones, and I can perhaps deepen or refine the view before I have to appear in public. So we really enjoy pushing philosophers as hard as possible to really give an accurate understanding of what they're saying in a way that's accessible to the general public. We do have philosophers who listen to the show, but we also have a large lay public who have no philosophy background and we especially try to cater for them. Yeah, I'll jump in on this bandwagon and tooting our own horn a little bit more. I know as a college student, disagreement tends to be something that people of my generation shy away from. And I think it's interesting. So Eric Sampson has been one of our guests on the show. Rebecca Tuval has been a guest on one of our shows. They both are professors in the department for my major at my college. And Peter Singer, who appeared on our show at one point, gave a speech at our college that was highly controversial. And you two were the ones who stepped up to air it because our college didn't want to have too many ducks in a line with regard to that talk. But I don't think there's ever been a time more important than now for my generation to start seeing what healthy disagreement looks like. And I think you two do a really good job of that. And I hope by some sort of meiosis, I can start understanding the best ways to object to people. And I feel like I have over the past year. So definitely grateful for you two and your awesome brains and just all the objections you guys have made over the years. And I want to jump in to one of my favorite disagreements that you two have. So just for the listeners, I am still a young, naive philosopher, and I ascribe to virtue ethics, but I know that Mark is a non-consequentialist and Jason is a consequentialist. So 
Do either of you guys want to start with a thought experiment on your behalf? Yeah, I'll start with one. It comes up in the book, The Magus. So imagine that you're the mayor of a small village in Greece. It's 1945 and your village is occupied by Nazis. And they storm in and they round up all the young men in the village between the ages of 18 and 65. And they say to you as the mayor, look, we are very worried about there being a rebellion. And we've got two ways to quash this rebellion. The one is to delegitimize the mayor. That'll suck up all the kinds of fervor that you could have. We found this is a very useful method. And the other one is to ensure that there's no one that could sabotage us like the young men. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you this pistol. And you go and you kill one of these villagers, anyone you like. And if you refuse, we'll just kill them, all of them, ourselves. And the question is, what do you do? And so the consequentialist says, well, it's very easy. Just add up the numbers. One is a lot less than the 30. So yeah, kill the one innocent person. The non-consequentialist says, well, I will not be used as a tool of moral blackmail. That if the Nazis want to go and perform this evil deed, well, that's on them. They hold the culpability for that. I will not be used for that. And so the right thing to do is to refuse. To say to the Nazis, if you want to do this, you ought not to. You should try and persuade them. But to say to co-op me, to perform this vicious activity is something that I will not yield to. And I think that's quite a strong impulse that a lot of people have, that rights matter, that consequences aren't the only things that matter, that if we get into the kind of moral bean counting, we're going to wind up having to bite very difficult bullets. And I think that's one of the cases that, for me, makes me weary about being utilitarian. And it's one of the big debates that Jason and I have all the time. I don't think that consequences matter for nothing. I think being a moderate deontologist is a decent position to have, to say that rights matter, but there'll be some point where you can say the consequences are so big that there's something cruel about not taking them into account. You know, there are going to be bullets to bite on both sides. If you think about the inquiring murderer case, murderer rocks up at your door and says, are you hiding someone? You might think that it's incumbent on you to lie to them, even if you think that lying is generally wrong because you'd be able to save a life. So their consequences might trump rights. But yeah, I think it's a good schism worth exploring. It's very interesting you raise the case because my intuition is the opposite, right? So my intuition is, if I were to come to you as the villager and say to you, well, you either kill one of your own or we're going to kill all of them. And you say, you know what? I've been listening to Brandon Vat and Mark has convinced me that I will not be morally blackmailed. And you do what you will with a big smile on my face. And I say, kill them all. It's fine. You kill them all because I wash my hands of this. It's got nothing to do with me. Even though if I were to choose differently, they won't be killed. We might think that you're cruel. Or we might think that you're careless and you don't appreciate the suffering that others are going to endure and the cutting of their lives, sure. So, I mean, if, if we really think about the consequences there, we might say those consequences are so bad that the Kantian or the deontologist who doesn't take account of them seems like they're acting counterintuitively. So the first response that pops into my head is for the utilitarian to bite the bullet on this. The second response is to say, well, consequences matter, but long-term consequences matter. So although in the short term, let's say there's a village of 29 people or 30 people and you kill one and you save 29, in the short term, you're saving 29 and killing one. But in the long term, you might be setting up some sort of precedent where people generally in, in the society can be blackmailed. And it's going to lead to far more terrorism going forward and just a general precedent for things going wrong. And so you might want to say for consequentialist reasons, I'm not going to kill the one to save the 29. 
So Jason, this is one of the problems that I've seen with consequentialism that I just can't get my head behind. It seems like consequentialism, you can understand what it means and you can understand the consequences of your actions, but you don't really understand what the future could hold. Like you don't really understand the long-term consequences of what you're doing. So how can you say that consequentialism is sufficiently action guiding? If Mark can have one intuition about a case from a consequentialist perspective and you could have another. Yeah, it's a good question and it's a classic objection to utilitarianism. There's a few different ways that utilitarians respond. The one is just to say, well, that's not a unique problem to utilitarianism. So for example, you mentioned earlier that you're a virtue ethicist or, or buy into virtue ethics. That's a classic problem for virtue ethics is that virtue ethicists say, I've got all these different virtues that I need to act in accordance with, but it's very wishy-washy what to do when virtues conflict with each other. It's very wishy-washy to know exactly how each virtue should guide behavior in exactly what fashion. So in this situation, for example, what would the virtue ethicist say? It's very unclear because one virtue, let's say kindness, might say that you should save the 29. And another virtue, let's say integrity, says that you should not be blackmailed. So it would be highly difficult for a virtue ethicist to give an answer in that sort of situation. And it's also a problem for the deontologist because he's got all these different duties or all these different rules. So you often see deontology cashed out in legal systems. So you see this long list of rules. And then when two different rules conflict, then you've got a mess. So for example, let's say the one rule is you must respect the dignity of persons. And the other rule is there's freedom of speech. Then you've got these big clashes. And there are meta rules that you can come up with to try and solve these clashes. But it's not clear why the meta rules are correct. So the consequentialist will give you a reason why a rule is correct or not, because it either maximizes utility or it doesn't. But the deontologist doesn't have that resource. So the deontologist postulates a meta rule to decide which rules should take place in which circumstances, but he's got no backing for that meta rule. So all three of these systems, utilitarianism that looks at consequences, deontology that looks at duties, and virtue ethics all have this action guiding incompleteness problem. But there is a solution for the utilitarianism which is not available to either of the others. So the solution for the utilitarian is to say, it's not the actual consequences that matter because we don't know what those consequences will be. It's what consequences will probably happen given that I'm an informed agent. The person in that circumstance, the villager who's approached to decide whether he needs to kill one to save the other 29 villagers, he has to start thinking about, okay, if I kill this, if I kill this villager of mine, what are the probabilities that this will set up a general precedent? And what are the probabilities that the Nazis will just go back on their word and kill the others anyway? You know, what are the probabilities involved? And given the best information that I have at the time, I act based on those probabilities. So it's not the consequences that actually ensue afterwards, because as you say, we don't know what those are. It's what my best guess is at the time, given that I'm an informed agent. So one of the concerns with Jason's move towards probabilistic utilitarianism is that you stop caring about actual consequences and you start to think about your mental state. So you say, what did you intend? What did you foresee? What could have occurred? I mean, of course, it's not so simple to work out what the actual probabilities were. In this sort of situation, you've got to think over what time span. There's this great line about, was the French Revolution good or bad for society? And the response is, well, it's too soon to tell. The ramifications just keep going. So maybe you can only tell at the end of history, but then it's not action guarding at all. So Jason's going to want to say, well, 
there'll be some kind of medium horizon that you have. So maybe within the next 30 years, you work out that set of consequences. That's a very hard thing to calculate. So to be able to work out in the next 30 years, should I kill this guy or not? What are the possible consequences? What ramifications going to set up? What precedent would it set? Who's going to find out about it? I mean, I would think the machine just implodes. So then you kind of basically just substitute it with the kind of, well, in law we say, okay, what could you foresee within a horizon? Was it reasonable? Was it not? And then it stops looking like consequentialism to me. Then it starts to look like some kind of deontological model. And that might not necessarily be a bad thing. So Derek Parfit wrote this book called On What Matters, where he looks at three major theories, a rights-based theory, consequentialism, and contractarianism. And he says they're just different paths to ascend the same mountain and that you could translate them in terms of each other and that they would actually generate the same results once you refine the theory sufficiently. Peter Singer, who's regarded as the utilitarian, described it as one of the greatest works in ethics and a huge breakthrough. What's interesting about it is that we have spoken to a few people about Parfit's work, and we'll get a bit more into Parfit and personal identity during this episode, but the ethical work hasn't really been taken up that much. The book came out in 2016. It was his last work. It encompasses the work that he'd been working on for about 25 years, and then critiques. So some of the greatest philosophers in the world wrote critiques of the book, and then he responded to them. So I think it's three volumes. But it's a very enticing idea that you could solve morality in these different ways that maybe people haven't been going down different paths. They've just had maybe different languages to speak for the same problem. Yeah, one of the things philosophers love to do is to draw distinctions. So it would really pain my heart if it turns out that we agree, Mark, on ethics. So the reason philosophers exist is to draw distinctions and to explain why A is different from B and A is the incorrect option and B is the right option. So if A and B actually turn out in the end to be the same as C, well, you know, our jobs are over. There's no more disagreements. So a very big part of our lifestyle as philosophers is maintaining different disagreements and distinctions. So it does make sense to me that Parfit hasn't been universally taken up. But yeah, I think it's a nice objection that my view might collapse into deontology, but I'd obviously try to resist that and say, no, it's distinct, it's different. One of the other topics that Mark and I often disagree on is identity. And Parfit's uh, most important work maybe on the metaphysics of what makes you, you. Are you your body? Are you your mind? Are you some combination of the two? And Parfit really achieved his successes through thought experiments. So he gave thought experiments that explained why we might think that you are your mind or your body or both. Where this manifests the most, you'll see right now that I'm drinking out of a beer glass and, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, this isn't water, but pure vodka. Jason holds the radical view that not only would I be getting drunk, but that I would be killing myself. So Jason is completely abstemious, does not imbibe at all on the basis that he thinks that if you change your mental states sufficiently, and we've had many debates over the years about what would that count as sufficient and for what period of time, he thinks that you then cease to exist. And once you cease to exist, that's it. You're dead. Now, the argument is, well, once I've sobered up, surely I'm me again. He says, no. He says, you're dead. And what we have is a clone. And that clone is either taken over your old body or the body's dead as well because it's sufficiently changed due to the other effects of the drug or the alcohol. And you're just an imposter. And so Jason mourns my death on a kind of fortnightly basis once I have too much drinks as well. So nice, you know, goodbye, Mark number 49. Welcome on board, Mark number 50. It seems like we have a fair amount of continuity and Jason definitely holds Mark number 50 liable for all the sins of the prior marks. You know, the new Mark has to pay all the old debts and make amends for things that he did before. So there's a sort of interesting different kind of continuity with all the clones. It is one of the 
more obscene views that Jason holds, but I'll let him defend it in some more detail. Before Jason jumps in here, I am your guys' producer, so I'm going to have to go ahead and read this ad that we are going to start reading for every episode. This is brought to you by The Partially Examined Life. If you're looking for an excellent philosophy podcast, here's the show for you. The Partially Examined Life is a philosophical podcast by four guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living. For each episode, they pick a text and chat about it with some balance between insight and flippancy. You don't even have to know any philosophy or even have read the text they're discussing to follow and enjoy. With a 13-year-plus catalog of episodes, The Partially Examined Life has probably covered any philosophical topic you're interested in, from practical ethics to the theoretical foundations of science. They go deep into the history of philosophy while making it personal and funny. Join over 45 million downloads already pondering The Partially Examined Life. Find new episodes wherever you stream your podcasts or at partiallyexaminedlife.com. So just before I get to the response, anyone that's listened to our show might have come across our episode with Mark Linsenmayer on the philosophy of music. So he's one of the hosts of The Partially Examined Life and he was excellent on our show. So do check it out. It's an extremely well-established show with a long history and some fantastic topics. But now I'll tell you why I think you die when you drink. Imagine I make a copy of you. So you're standing right there, Jimmy, and I make a copy. And now there's two Jimmies. Are you both of those Jimmies or are you just the Jimmy in the original body? I'm inclined to say that I'm the Jimmy from my own point of view. So wherever I'm conscious from and wherever I'm looking out from, that's me. Yes, there'd be a second consciousness and that's a distinct being. There's Jimmy one, Jimmy two, but Jimmy remains Jimmy one. He doesn't become Jimmy one plus Jimmy two. Now, when you drink, I think what happens is that you cease to exist if you drink sufficiently enough. So if your mental states change a lot, you cease to exist. Now, why do I think that? Because I think who you are is your psychological profile and your mental states. And if you drink a lot, your psychological profile changes a lot. It changes enormously. So there's not another person where you were, and then you sober up, or this person, this drunk person sobers up. And now a third person arises. And the question is the third person the same as the first, because the third person has a bit of a hangover, but seems to have largely the same psychological profile as the first person. The problem is that between the first and the third, there's a discontinuity. The same kind of discontinuity there is in the case where I gave you, which is that I make a copy of you. The reason we think that you're not the copy is that the two of you are discontinuous. There's a discontinuity there. We can't perfectly explain why your body and your mind shifts into that second person. And I think that's what's happening in the case where you drink is there's you, then there's a break, a discontinuity in you, someone else takes over, and then there's an apparent you again, but you can't persist through discontinuities. I think in order for it to be you and not just a copy of you, there needs to be a coherent explanation of what links the first person and the third person, the person before the drink and the person after the sobering up. We don't have that. There's this discontinuity. We don't think that objects and people generally survive discontinuities like that. I do have two objections here. So one is, and we discussed this first objection in length before, but let's say I stub my toe and, you know, for the past two minutes, I just, I can't remember anything. I'm just in severe pain. I'm holding my toe crying and Jimmy too next to me has no problem. He didn't stub his toe. He's fine. 
there seems to be a discontinuity between before I stub my toe and after I stub my toe. And I can't really see that causal connection between the two of them while I'm in extreme pain. But I come out on the other end feeling like the same Jimmy. I have recollection of stubbing my toe. I remember that what the pain felt like. And I know John Locke has an account of self that is tied to memories. So I'm wondering what you do with memories in that case. And also the case of maybe you're opening the floodgates here to all sorts of discontinuities, not just the use of drugs, but also extreme emotions and other painful experiences. So I think there is a type of pain that would count as a death or a discontinuity. On my view, that pain would have to be prolonged. It would have to be so long and so intense that all of your dispositions change. So you have the disposition that if I were to ask you certain questions, you would have certain answers. Now, when you stub your toe and you're in a lot of pain and I ask you questions, let's say, where were you born? Do you love your parents? What kind of books do you like to read? All of those answers will be the same answers. It just could be that you're quite distracted. You know, you're like, I don't want to talk about movies right now. And I don't want to talk about how I feel about my parents or where I was born. My toe really hurts and you might be really angry, but you know the answers to those questions. You know, your psychological profile hasn't shifted. But if that pain is prolonged, it's not two minutes and it's not stubbing your toe. It's that you're in a severe car accident and you lose a limb and on a daily basis, you're in agony. That will change you. There is a death there. The person that arises at the end of that process of healing will not be the same as the person before. I'm not saying there'll be a worse person. This is not an anti-disabled argument. I'm not saying that if you lose a limb, you're a worse human being. I'm saying that you'll be distinct. You'll be a distinct person. Your psychological profile will change. And so I, I think that there's going to be a boundary problem here. So there's going to be a question, you know, if it's not two minutes and it's not and it is two years, if the pain goes on for two years, that's a new person, but it's not a new person if it's for two minutes, then where is the line between two minutes and two years? And this is a problem that plagues philosophers in a lot of areas of philosophy. It's a sororities problem. It's a sororities paradox. So you've got a stone and another stone, a whole lot of individual stones. And when you put them one on top of the other, at some point it becomes a pile of stones. But at what point? Is it five? Is it five stones? Is it 10 stones? Is it 100 stones? At what point is it a pile? There's no clear answer to that question, but that's not to say that we're skeptical about piles, right? We do think that there's piles of rocks, piles of stones, even if we can't precisely define where they happen. And that's what I'm saying. I'm saying there is a death. We don't have to be skeptical that there's a death just because we can't precisely point out where that death happens. So a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think the one is if Jason wants to hold on to the view that taking a drug or drinking results in a death, then we already have an idea about how many rocks we're talking about piled up. People aren't drunk for two years. So, you know, he's going to say, if you went on a severe enough bender and you woke up with a hangover, and let's even just accelerate it to, you don't remember what happened last night. You did black out. He's going to say, you're dead. And that means that all the other cases that Jimmy gives of you were in pain for a day, or you went through a kind of hysterical period where you were just massively angry or very depressed or whatever it is, and then returned back to the base of what you were like before. Jason says, no, you didn't return, you died. You know, this clone took over. And that seemed counterintuitive to me. The other one is this, I think we do colloquially use the phrase that has become a new person. So one of the cases that Jason gave me was to say, when you have an addict, people often say they're not the person that I used to know. And I think there's something in that, in the sense that their dispositions have shifted, they might become incredibly dishonest, that maybe when they're paralytic drunk, they're very different to what they were like when they're sober. 
but a lot of their character traits would have shifted dramatically as well. And you can say it's a new person. But I think there are other cases where we talk about a new person. So you could say, this is something I'm sure Jimmy's parents tell the time, Jimmy was such a sweet boy, and then we sent him off to go and study in Memphis, and he's come back with all that liberal arts college philosophy nonsense, and he's a whole new person. It's not the Jimmy that we grew up with, you know. Or Jason and I are off to Thailand on Monday, and we're going to come back feeling refreshed, and we're going to say, oh, I feel like a new person after my holiday. And so I think there's some kind of metaphorical use of this idea of a new person that's distinct from you died and some other entity has taken over. Um, and so I just don't buy the account. I think as well that you can have things that cease to exist and then pop back into existence. So for example, you can imagine an antique that breaks into a thousand pieces and those pieces get scattered around the globe. We could say the, the antique, the sword of Damocles, let's say, is no more. But then someone decides they want to rebuild the sword of Damocles and they go and they find all these pieces and they smelt the sword back. We could say, this is the sword of Damocles. It's existed, it ceased to exist, and now it exists again. And I think you could have that with a fractured psyche or someone who sobers up. I don't think we have a new entity. I think we have the same entity that has popped back in. So I think there's an interesting distinction to be made. You see, philosophers make distinctions between continuity and similarity. So in the toe stubbing case, when Jimmy stubs his own toe, the way he reacts to that pain is going to be quite different from the way you, Mark, will react to that pain and the way I will react to that pain. So there is still continuity there. There's continuity. We can explain Jimmy's reactions to the pain according to his past, but there is not that continuity when Jimmy takes some cocaine. I've seen Jimmy on cocaine and he's impossible. No, I've never seen Jimmy on cocaine. Jimmy's a nightmare on cocaine, let's just say. <laughs> it really is so unlike Jimmy at every other time. You know, Jimmy's very sweet and very conscientious and very diligent. Put him on some cocaine and he's a nightmare. There's a discontinuity and we can't explain his nightmarishness according to his previous traits, according to his psychological profile. We have to insert this foreign, this foreign object, the cocaine, to explain how he is, right? So it seems to me something like pain can be explained. It's even though there's a dissimilarity in my behavior when I'm in pain versus not in pain, there's still continuity. There's still an explanation that we can give in terms of my previous psychological profile. Then in terms of the new personhood. So I agree that sometimes we use the idea of a new person in a metaphorical way. You know, I go on holiday and now I'm a new person when I come back. I think when I say that I'm exaggerating and I am using it metaphorically, but I'm also saying something false. So in other words, it, I'm not a new person, but when I get my limb chopped off in that accident and I recover, I am, it seems very much a new person. Or if I'm an addict and previously wasn't and suddenly start lying and cheating and, and taking substances, behaving very strangely compared with my previous behavior, really does seem like I'm a new person. So I agree that we use the same phrase in different circumstances, but I just think we use it differently in different circumstances. Sometimes we use it metaphorically sometimes literally, and that's standard for the English language. We often use phrases in both a literal and a metaphoric sense in different circumstances. And then finally, the antique case is interesting. So you've got this antique and you split it up into its thousand pieces and you ship off each piece around the world. And it seems like when you dismantle it, it ceases to exist. Then you bring all the pieces back to the same place and you reassemble it and it seems like it persists. Now, what's interesting there is that in the case of humans, I had a nice response and now I just realized it doesn't work. All right. I'm going to think about it, Mark. Very good. <laughs> the sword of Damocles has come down and chopped off Jason's head. Jason is no more. Victory is mine. <laughs> okay. I've got a nice response. Okay. I've got a nice response. 
So in the sort of Damocles case or in the clock case where it gets dismantled, pieces get shipped all over the world, comes back. What's interesting is that the sort of Damocles and the clock are artifacts. And what makes an artifact an artifact is common agreement that a certain material object constitutes it. So this is Searle's account. So what John Searle says is there's a social constructionist account of artifacts. What makes an artifact an artifact is that there's common agreement that this set of material parts constitutes this artifact. Without that social agreement, you don't have the artifact. And it seems like our beliefs are that you don't have the clock or the sword of Damocles when it's dismantled. And our common beliefs are that you do have the sword of Damocles when it's reassembled and you do have the clock when it's reassembled. So what do you have there? You've got common agreement constituting a certain object at a certain time, common agreement saying that object ceased to exist, and then common agreement that object is the very same object at a later time. And that because the very nature of artifacts involves common agreement as part of its identity criterion, it's what constitutes it, it's that common agreement, that's sufficient to link the first and the third states when it was assembled before and when it's assembled after. Then I'm prepared to bite the bullet on that and say to you, okay, I agree, I concede, I concede that's the same sword. But persons are not like artifacts. There's not some common agreement that makes the person a person at one point and then the same person, the person at a later point. What I think unifies a person is their psychological states. So it's not the case that you have this extra factor that's linking the first and the third states, this common agreement that's missing in the person case, but present in the sword or clock case. I have a few things to say here. So one, I just want to offer a quick objection. I don't want to keep pushing you against the wall. I know Mark and I are kind of beaten up on you, but one quick objection and then two questions for you regarding this claim. The first objection is, so you're saying that an artifact remains the same artifact because we all agree that it is what constituted that artifact in the first place. But I know you, especially Jason, ascribe to a neurological basis of psychology and human behavior. We can find physical reasons for all of our actions and the way that we are and the way that we behave. So I'm wondering, like, you know, if one of my roommates were to walk into the room right now, I would say, oh, hey, Graham, how are you doing? And all of my roommates would say, that's also Graham, even though he was shit-faced last night, let's say. In an outward appearance, we all agree that's Graham. And his physical makeup, we can trace back to the same Graham as it was before he started drinking last night. So to me, the artifacts is pretty much the same thing as this psychological makeup because it is it does have a physical basis. And we are agreeing that physical basis hasn't changed sufficiently to change his name or who he is. We don't call him Graham too. And then the questions for you, one is, this is just kind of interesting to me. Let's say that I were to drink because I'm really upset with who I am and I really want to feel differently. Am I committing suicide in a morally blameworthy way versus me going out to hang out with my friends and drinking so much by accident that I, you know, change sufficiently the next day and I'm no longer Jimmy? Is that blameworthy as well or is that not suicide by any means? Okay, so what's interesting about the clock case is because it's an artifact, you know, like you said, I really rely on the neurological basis of psychological states. And when it comes to social objects like artifacts, I don't think they exist for that reason. So I think all there is is a set of physical stuff there that we call a clock, but we call it a clock incorrectly so. There's just physical stuff there. So the kind of case that you would need is a case where we wouldn't say it's an artifact, it's just a physical object. So let's say it's a rock right? So you've got this rock and you chop up the rock into a, a thousand pieces 
and you send those pieces around the world and you wait for those pieces to come back and then you put all those pieces together, is that the same rock? Now it's not so clear. Now I don't have a clear intuition that's the same rock. So in it, what's interesting is in the Theseus' ship case and in the clock case and in the sort of Damocles case, what's doing the work there in the example is the common belief. It's the artifactness of the object. But once you remove that and you just find an object that's only an object and not an artifact and there's no common beliefs about it and there's no collective agreement, then it's not so clear to me anymore. My intuitions are then very vague. Is that the same rock or not? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I'm not sure anyone has any firm intuitions on that. So it's not the material stuff that's doing the work there. And then your second objection, are you doing something morally blameworthy when you drink on purpose versus not on purpose and you die in both cases? Well, I think there's a more fundamental question, which is suicide morally blameworthy? It's not clear to me that it is. It depends. So it depends on the consequences involved because I'm a utilitarian. So will the consequences after I die be worse than the consequences if I didn't die? Those are interesting questions. I do think that you have ended your life. And so something bad has happened to that being if that being was living a good life. Maybe something good has happened to that being if it was living a bad life. So it's going to be on a case-by-case basis. I have an interest in surviving. I would like to survive. So I don't drink and I don't allow others to give me drinks because I would like to survive. But the copy of Jason might function just as well as this Jason and produce the same amount of utility in the world. And so nothing bad has happened if this Jason takes a drink to the world. So if you look at the overall utility of the world, nothing bad has happened. But this Jason has ended and I'm this Jason and I'd like to continue. So there's an interesting moral dilemma that I think arises out of this, which is that Jimmy being a good looking, charming guy is actually a lady killer. You know, as he hits the dance floor and all these women like swoon and their dopamine levels rush up, he's literally murdering them. They're just dying because they've had this elatory experience in a way better than just drinking their first sip of beer. I think we got to report him to the police. <laughs> it's a nice objection. So, so the question is how much of a discontinuity is enough of a discontinuity? So I do think that if you fall in love with someone, you could die. I do think that there's such enormous changes. I mean, this has been extremely well investigated by neuroscientists. They put people in love in fMRI machines and they have a look at their brains and they really are nuts. You know, what goes on in a person's brain when they're in love compared with when they're not, it's insane. Whole parts of the brain switch off, whole parts of the brain switch on, they're a distinct person. And if you speak to neurologists about it, they're like 100%, the old person's gone. They might disagree with me about the old person coming back when they fall out of love. But the point is they'd agree that this is a totally different functioning brain. I mean, if Jimmy has this effect on every woman who steps on the dance floor, then, I mean, maybe Jimmy is a serial killer, maybe. Something just to think about is that if you take my view seriously, you might want to reconsider the badness of certain events. So Jimmy mentioned suicide earlier, you mentioned killing. You might want to identify the moral harm, not with killing an individual, but by them preventing future individuals from arising. So when you destroy that body, the harm is not in killing the individual in that body, the person. It's in destroying the body so that other persons can't inhabit it. So that might actually be where the moral bad happens. 
Yeah, you know, Jason, if I'm charming you sufficiently, I might be like the terrorist, <laughs> international criminal. <laughs> okay, let's move on because I feel like we've been on this topic quite a, quite a long time. So I know we have some exciting projects that we're looking forward to within the next year. Do either of you guys want to speak to that? Yeah, so the show we've been running for about uh, two and a half years and we really have had some wonderful, delightful people on. Some of those, yes, we, we get on a few more times. I, and I think this will be the first time Jimmy's actually hearing this, am planning on doing a little trip to the States in March. I want to come down to visit uh, Jimmy in Memphis. So really, I'm sleeping on your couch. Peter, keep a nice spot for me. Tell Graham he's sleeping on the floor. And I thought it'd be quite cool to do a little bit of meeting some of the guests in person. It'd be a nice chance for some of the fans of the show to come take a selfie with me, get some books signed, maybe do some in-person brand of that stuff. I'm going to try and speak at the Mid-South Conference in Memphis. And um, yeah, the wonderful thing about Americans is they give you a 10-year visa. So hopefully it won't be the only time that I come to the States. And it really is wonderful meeting people from all around the world. Most of our guests are American, but we've had people from Australia and from the UK. And so it'd be nice to have a bit more of a traveling brand of us. Yeah, and we've got some other exciting projects lined up as well. We've got some cool guests that we'd like to invite on the show. Stephen Kirshner, as I said, is our first guest coming up. And we're always having philosophers approach us to be on the show, and we're always approaching new philosophers. At the beginning of last year, we created a list of our, our sort of idols, our philosophical heroes and heroines. And we steadily worked our way down that list, and we invited most of them on the show. And this year, we had some real swashbucklers. So we we had uh, Martha Nussbaum, we had John Martin Fisher, we had some fantastic philosophers on the show who are sort of personal heroes of ours, and we look forward next year to doing the same. I'm curious who your favorite guest was of the past year. So I think it's a little bit like who's your favorite child. I love having Roger Hawani on the show. We've had him on a number of times. He's just such a delight, so sharp, so fun. We often have an interesting way for us to kind of gather how much we enjoy the episode is not what happens on the episode, but what happens before and afterwards. So we've chatted to Roger for hours after we've stopped the recording button. In our most recent episode with him on the right to sex, he's deliberately trying to crack us up and just has the best thought experiments involving Jason going to a zebra petting zoo. And thank goodness we record on Speak of You because we are just killing ourselves laughing. So I really love having Raj on the show. Of course, Rebecca has been one of my favorite guests. I really enjoyed her two episodes. And, you know, she's also the reason why you're our producer. She put us in touch and, you know, we, we often stay in touch. And I think she just has a really interesting way of looking at the world. You know, episodes on transracialism and on public shaming are two of my big highlights. Yeah, I mean, Roger is also a fantastic guest. I really enjoyed Roger. Other guests that I loved having on from previous years was Graham Oppie, and for a similar reason, John Martin Fisher. So Graham Oppie is one of the world's most famous atheists, and he has a really nice version of the argument from evil against God. But it's his delivery that's so impressive, that he's so humble. And even though he's such an expert, he's just a pleasure to talk with. And I would think that most atheists just don't, or most theists rather, don't feel threatened by him because he's just so friendly and open to discussion. And I had a similar experience with John Martin Fisher. So back in the day when I was doing my honors, which the equivalent of a fourth year at the end of a degree in, in philosophy in the States, I did my research project on free will. And it was a real honor to have John Martin Fisher on the show because he is a free will expert, if not the free will expert today. And having the discussion with him was amazing because even though he is sort of the expert on this, he was just so pleasant to talk with. And he was enormously receptive to the things we asked and said. 
and afterwards asked us all sorts of questions about what we meant by this and do we have any references for him and please could we email him our suggestions on this or that. And he was one of the guests who appeared on the show to get feedback on one of his views and he just is incredibly humble and yet one of the greatest living philosophers. And that combination of extreme ability and acuity and brilliance together with humility is just such a joy to engage. And yeah, for that reason, he's probably one of my favorite guests. Yeah, I feel a little guilty. When I first met John Martin Fisher, I asked him if he was familiar with Sam Harris's work. And I hadn't realized at the time that like John Martin Fisher was sort of the forefront of the free will discussion. So he was so humble throughout that entire thing. And he is a really brilliant guy. I think on the other end, Lionel Shriver is humble, but she speaks her mind extremely well. And so I really enjoyed listening to her give her opinions on things. And the way that she blends art with philosophy was very interesting. So she's, she's the queen of all thought experiments in a way, because everything that she writes is fictionalized. She was excellent. And there is something to be said for stating your view with no compromise. There's something to be said with sticking with a position and not giving an inch. That's not a worse way to be than humble. And we have had guests on the show like that. So Mike Humer is like that. And Mike Humer, incidentally, is one of the only guests we've ever had on the show that I agree with. So to have someone on the show who holds a position that I think is correct, for the record, is his view on anarchy or anarchism. I'm also an anarchist and there's very few anarchists around. And I just think he represents the view so well and argues so succinctly and cleverly for it. It was lovely to hear him not giving an inch. It was lovely to hear him bashing heads with Mark, who got quite upset at one point. We have had guests on the show like Mark Huma who are extremely straightforward about what they believe. They're not exactly polite about it. They say what they mean and they stand by it. And that's not a worse approach. It can be more difficult to interview them if you disagree with them because they can be quite short with you in terms of what they say. It's not less valuable. Your philosophy is not about making friends. It's about pursuing the truth. And you can do that in various ways. Yeah, I think what's interesting that I felt is we do a little bit of a pre-chat with our guests. So we have 15, 20 minutes with them beforehand. They get a very short email from me basically saying, this is what we'd like to have you on for. We do a bit of, sometimes I'll read catalog of their work. Sometimes there is no preparation beyond the email. But we found that all have a certain way of being that's just completely unusual and wonderful, which is this openness to frank conversation, to be, I find, generally exceedingly polite, especially under the face of scrutiny. We know never to attack each other. We attack the ideas. And I often feel like one way of us showing how much we like you is to really hit hard. The harder the questions, the more comfortable we feel with the person. One of our close personal friends, Sean Stanley, whenever we have him on the show, Jason and I try and box as hard as we can because he loves it and we love it. If we're being polite or not asking hard enough questions, then the guests should worry. <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, Jason, I want to thank you guys for an awesome episode. This is the only time you guys ever get to hear it from the other side, but you two are really awesome to work with, constantly inspiring me and constantly inspiring other philosophers around you. And uh, you talk about the way that you can disagree in a polite manner. You two are the quintessential example of that. So thank you. And I also want to thank my co-host. So if anyone isn't aware, Mark was the one who drove the show in the beginning. And the idea of starting with a thought experiment was very much Mark's idea. And he had faith when this started in ways that I didn't, I think. And he tirelessly edited the episodes before we got Jimmy on board. And yeah, Mark has really driven this process. So thank you, Mark. And thank you to both of you. I mean, Jason's the actual philosopher on the show. <laughs> 
I'm just this mommy lawyer. But it has just been just an absolute delight. And yeah, I, I think given the volume of what we do and that Jason and I both have very busy lives, it really wouldn't be sustainable without, without Jimmy's hard work. And it's just been wonderful to share this project with you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for welcoming us onto Brandon Nevat and playing a guest host. It was a lot of fun. I wouldn't be a good producer if I didn't also say thank you to all of our listeners and watchers. So yeah, I would say our audience is one of my favorite parts of working for the show because I make one error and then within an hour of posting it, somebody's in the comments saying, you need to fix this. So it's happened a few times and we love the feedback and we're always open to you guys saying more things and objecting to Jason and Mark because I know they need to hear it sometimes. Or just me. Everyone seems to object to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everyone, for your objections. <laughs> <laughs>